I was uh, recently in a grocery store when the checkout guy made a comment about the sweatshirt that I was wearing. He absolutely loved it. He said, that is the coolest retro sweatshirt I have seen all day. You see, apparently retro is in. There's this whole new wave of clothing and particularly fan apparel that is designed in the style to look old school like they used to wear back in the day. But what that young grocery guy didn't know is that my sweatshirt wasn't retro at all. It was just authentically old. I was wearing my 1994 Nebraska National Championship sweatshirt, complete with old-school, blonde-haired Herbie Husker right on the front. You see, my sweatshirt wasn't made to look old. Rather, apparently, I've just gotten old. As has my sweatshirt, which, as I do the math, is now 26 years old. And I'm still wearing it. Which reminds me of an important fashion lesson that I've learned. You see, if you just keep wearing the same thing, eventually, once every two or three decades, you will be right on trends. You know, people around here probably think that Ryan Harmon is our fashionista pastor, but you stick with me, and at least once or twice in your lifetime, you're going to be super cool. But what's most sad about my sweatshirt and my fashion ineptitude is actually that I still cling to the notion that we, Nebraska, are still national champions. My oldest son was born the year that we won that championship, and he is a married adult. It's been over two decades since Nebraska has been anywhere remotely close to a championship, yet... Like many of us, I continue to hold on to hope. Hope springs eternal. Just waiting for that next great season, the next great championship moment. And in the meantime, I just try and hang in there. And I wear a really, really old sweatshirt. Now that's fine, I guess when it comes to football fandom and maybe even to fashion. But what if that's our approach to being the church? If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you open with me to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. We're in the middle of studying the book of Acts, and we have entitled the series, Daring to be the Church. Last week, Brian shared with us an absolutely incredible moment in the early church. The moment where Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, goes from being a tongue-tied coward in the courtyard of the high priest to a fearlessly bold and impassioned proclaimer of the good news to a massive multinational crowd in Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, Ryan shared with us the incredible account of the coming of the Holy Spirit on that same day with power and fire and the miraculous translation of the good news into many languages. These astounding occurrences mark the launch of the first century church. And by the time Brian had finished last week, over 3,000 people had been added to their number in a single day. Extraordinary. But 
what now? What's next? Is being the church all about those incredible championship moments? Or is there more in between? Do we simply hang on and wait for the next off-the-charts supernatural moment? Or how do we dare to be the church on any given ordinary day? That's what I'd like us to talk about this morning. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 2 and let's start in verse 41 where Brian left off. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Amazing. But now what? Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So when the Spirit of God had led thousands to immediately follow Christ, it became the responsibility of the church to help them understand what it means to be disciples, just as Jesus commanded in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So in verse 42, we are introduced to four practices of the church. But before we examine those four practices specifically, note the language the text, the text uses in introducing them. It says, they, now the 3,120 or so members of the first church, were one, continually, two, devoting, and three, themselves. Note first that these practice was, practices were not one-off or infrequent. They were what the church was continually focusing on. The big moments we've seen thus far in the book of Acts now transition to a more regular pattern for the church. Second, they were devoted to these practices. One commentator describes this word as persisting obstinately in something. These practices were not casual, take-it-or-leave-it activities for them. They were what they gave themselves fully to as newly redeemed followers of Christ. And third, Luke speaks of the together nature of the church as they were continually devoting themselves together to the practices of the church. These were not individual endeavors. They were corporate practices. So with that in mind, what were the four practices that Luke recounts? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. First, the apostles' teaching. Instruction is at the heart of discipleship. And all of these new believers had so much to learn about who Jesus was and what living for him really meant. So they were gathering continually to learn from the apostles, who, just as we saw in the text last week, likely tied the Old Testament, which they were already familiar with, to what they had been learning over the past three and a half years of walking and living with Jesus, to begin to help the early church now understand the will of God and what it means to live out the life of Christ. Now, we are incredibly blessed today because we now have the completed 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. But we are taught in a different way than the apostles' teaching in the first century, but teaching and instruction is still at the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower. 
we are called to be continually devoting ourselves to learning God's truth. If we are not continually learning God's truth, it is highly unlikely that we will be able to become more like Christ and live out his will in this world. That was the first thing. The second, they're continually devoting themselves to fellowship. The word here is koinonia, and it's a word that means sharing in common. It is the first time that the word koinonia is used in the New Testament. But it is going to be a common, repeated theme this morning and as we go through the book of Acts. They were living an in-common shared experience. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Third, the breaking of bread. Now, there's some disagreement among commentators of whether this means just having meals together or whether there's something more to it. But the context tips the answer to understanding that they likely were doing just as Jesus instructed. As they gathered together for their meals, they also stopped for a time of remembrance. Not just breaking bread, but breaking the bread. Just as Jesus had called them to, to do in remembrance of him, to take the bread and the cup and to reflect and to remember who he is and what he has done. They were continually devoting themselves to remembering and focusing on Jesus Christ. And that is the essence of what worship is all about. Bringing our hearts and minds back to a focus on the goodness of our God, who he is, and what he's done. And finally, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, this was primarily corporate prayer. Surely as Christ followers, they prayed individually, but it is interesting to note that their pattern, as was the case in the upper room with the 120 disciples before Pentecost, was to gather together to pray, to call out to God and to trust in the only one who was able to help them in the midst of the world in which they lived. Those are the four practices, and those practices contributed to the creation of church as a living, dynamic, powerful, joyful, and growing organism. And they were foundational to what follows. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property. And possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in the book of Acts, we see a number of very specific moments when the Spirit of God worked through the apostles to establish and to advance the church. But the book also contains several summary paragraphs that serve as hinges connecting the specific and often extraordinary moments of this period. Those summary paragraphs also illustrate the more typical and normative pattern of the church in the first century. So a passage like the one that we are looking at today becomes particularly important because it is not a single momentous occurrence. Rather, it is a more typical picture of life in the early church. 
And in this summary passage, we find a number of important principles that were applicable not only then, but now as we seek also to be Christ followers, daring to be the church. So let's take a closer look at this picture of the church that Luke has painted. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, obviously, when genuine miracles are taking place right in front of your face, it is going to create a sense of awe and wonder. And in the first century church, that is exactly what was happening. And when the text says everyone, it is referring not only to those who are inside the church, but also those in the watching world around them. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. You know, it would be easy for us to just look past verse 43, because it seems irrelevant to us. But I wonder, is it? While certainly God is not working in the church in America in the same way that the Spirit was being manifested in Jerusalem at Pentecost, I wonder if sometimes we have forgotten that He is the exact same God. He is not some concept found only in historic and dusty volumes of an old library. No, He is the living God today. And the same Spirit of God is right here, right here, right now. And we are still called to trust Him, to believe Him, to change lives, and to change the world. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, because we must believe that He is and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Perhaps a lack of faith causes a lack of expectancy. I guarantee that these first century followers were waiting with bated breath over what God would do next. And while the expression specifically of what God is doing in our day and age might look different now, it does not have to be any less real for us as the church today. On the wall of my office here in the building, I have a quote from William Carey, the founder of the modern missions movement. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. You see, we will never attempt great things if we don't expect great things. The quote is a reminder for me of our work in Asia. And I can tell you without a doubt, God is doing the incredible through all of us over there right now. But I wonder, how might he want to show his glory in a manner that causes wonder and awe right here, even this week? Verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Here again, we find this picture of an in common existence. The text says that all who believed were together. Now, that includes being physically together, as verse 46 speaks of their gatherings. But it also has a far deeper meaning. They weren't just in the same space physically. They were doing life together. 
Their existence was an in-common existence, so much so that they were sharing whatever they had with each other. For a person in the first century church, the experience was a we experience. But what about today? For us, it is primarily a me experience. You know, it's interesting and it's challenging because for us in our American culture, almost everything in our culture and thus the American church is tilted toward individualism. In fact, our very cultural markers of success are primarily expressions of individualism and independence. The more successful you are, the more space and separation you can have from everyone else. And we have succeeded in creating an existence in which it is possible to live almost entirely separate from and independent of any other person other than those we've chosen in our immediate family. Life in America, and even in the American church, is a me experience. Here in Acts, it was clearly a we experience. Verse 45, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, this was not some sort of a designed social structure, nor was it a mandated program. It was actually just an incredible demonstration of love. It was a picture of how beautiful life can be as people live, surrendered to Christ, focused on God and the mission, and with and for each other, as they were together living this in common existence, they came to know and care about each other and each other's needs. And when they saw a need, they met it. Because the Spirit of God within the believer prompts acts of extravagant love and generosity as we connect relationally to one another. You know, countless times I have seen the same thing right here. You are an extravagantly generous church. I don't know that I have ever seen a need here brought to the attention of others that went unmet. So it is the same operating principle led by the same empowering Spirit of God. What's different for us, and perhaps missing for us, is the same level of togetherness, of in common life. I would venture to guess that were we to actually be doing life together more, we too would be sharing what God has given us even more. So perhaps the challenge God has for us is to consider whether our successful, independent American lives really produce the kind of life we truly want. Verse 46, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Here again, I love the picture that is being painted for us. What did church look like for them? Again, it was being together a lot. 
When verse 42 told us that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the in common experience of fellowship with one another, it meant continually devoting themselves. So here we see in verse 46 that day by day they are with one mind, and I'll come back to that, together in the temple and sharing fellowship from house to house. And notice what a joy they had in this experience of being the church. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor from all the people. Again, it's interesting to contrast our setting and theirs. I believe that if Luke were to describe the rhythm of the church in America today, he would likely write week by week rather than day by day. Our experience of church is much more a weekly event than a daily experience. And even those who participate in a midweek program or even a life group are primarily experiencing those things week by week. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. It's just what the church has become in our culture. But as we look at this picture in Acts 2, I find myself wondering if their sense of joy and community and impact wasn't a byproduct of their intentionality in pursuing the life of Christ together. And perhaps we would find far greater joy, community, and meaning if we would pursue a more day-by-day experience of being the church together. Notice, too, in verse 46, that the early church gathered both in the temple and also house to house. They would all come regularly to the temple, and this would be the primary place for the apostles' teaching and even the times of corporate prayer. But equally important was the fellowship and the remembrance of Christ that occurred house to house as they were together in each other's homes. When you think of our church, what comes to mind? I would guess that it's likely the worship service or another event or program. In the American church today, the relationship is primarily linear between the individual and the church, meaning the leadership, the program, or the events. But what we see in Acts is not only a linear relationship between the believers and the apostles as they teach, but also a circular one with one another. And here, too, we find a challenge for us to consider as the church in America today. I am incredibly thankful for this beautiful space that we have right here to gather and to welcome so many people to worship and to learn God's word week in and week out. But we do need to understand that there is an inherent danger in our form and our setting for gathering. You know, if you've gone out on a weekend to the, to the lead center, to see a show or a concert, or even if you've just gone to one of the movie theaters in town, 
And then afterwards, you've gone for coffee or dessert with some other people. Almost invariably, the conversation will proceed like this. Someone will say, so, what did you think of the show? And then you will begin to talk about the show, and you'll talk about the actors that you liked and the ones that you didn't, and whether you thought the writing was good and what the plot was like and where your seat was and whether you could see well. You'll go through all kinds of things where you evaluate and express your opinion about the show. Well, how many times do we leave here on a Sunday and go to lunch together? And invariably, the question comes up, so, what did you think about church? And we begin to enter into the same mindset. How was the message? Do we like the message? Do we like the person who was preaching? What about the worship? I like those songs. Those were too old. They were too loud. What about how the stage looked? What about where I was sitting? What about the rules they're making us follow? And we get into this mindset where we come and we view ourselves as an evaluator, a consumer, perhaps even a critic rather than a disciple, which means a learner. Perhaps better questions for our post-church conversation would be, what did you learn from our experience of gathering together today? Or how do you see God at work in our church this week? What do you think he might want to do in and through us as we listen to and learn from him? One more important thing in verse 46. We see that they day by day were together continuing with one mind. Now, your translation may just say together. But the original language communicates something much more powerful than the English. The Greek word that is translated of one mind is homothumadon which carries the idea of being of one accord. It means to have the same passion. The word is used to describe a people who have a like precious faith. The ancient Greek poet Homer used the word to describe the opposite in declaring that wolves and lambs do not have hearts agreed with one another. But what about us? Do we have hearts and minds agreed with one another. The early church gathered in the temple and house to house with one mind, with hearts agreed, with the same passion. And what was that? Certainly it wasn't everything in life. It was the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remember how the church began? Last week, Brian described it. Peter proclaimed Christ, connecting the prophecies of the Old Testament to the reality of their world, the very recent death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the offer of redemption through Christ. And 3,000 of them were all in. And now they are continually devoting themselves to a very clear, specific calling and mission. In our 2020 LBC vernacular, we would say they were coming together to grow in knowing Jesus, to actually become more like him, and to help others to do the same. And the results were beautiful. We see a wonderful picture 
of church here in Acts 2. But you know, I am not so sure that we are currently experiencing that same homothumadon in our world. The church in America seems more divided than united. There seems these days to be as much discord as one accord. Honestly, as ministry leaders, it seems like almost everything we seek to do or even just announce in these difficult and trying days in America is met with some level of angry pushback. The New International Dictionary of the New Testament describes Humathumadan as inner unity of a group faced by a common duty or danger. It says this unanimity is not based on common personal feelings, but on a cause greater than the individual. Perhaps that is what is needed in the church in America today. Maybe even in our church. Perhaps we need to be less passionate about, less invested in our opinions and feelings on every single difficult issue out there right now. Perhaps instead, we need to focus more on the heart of our Father and the mission He has given us to bring the love of Jesus Christ to every person and to help each other and everyone else to become more like Christ with a character of love, joy, kindness, peace, patience. In the midst of a world that is filled with anger, sarcasm, division, and just plain cruelty. New Testament scholar Kenneth Weiss translates this verse, and daily they continue to remain in the temple in perfect unanimity. Not just unity, unanimity. Wow. What they had was incredibly strong. So what's the solution for us? How could we possibly hope to experience not only unity, but unanimity? I believe the answer is found in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Did you know that Jesus actually prayed for you? He prayed for all of his followers, and he prayed only one thing. Do you know what it was? Jesus prayed for us that we would be one. Just as he and the Father were one. He prayed that the same oneness would be among us and with them. And why did he pray that? He says it clearly, so that the world would believe that the Father sent his Son. If we are to have any hope of this kind of unity, it must come from a renewed focus on the Savior and the core of the mission. So what is one accord? It is like a picture of an orchestra. There's lots of instruments, but they are all playing in tune, and it's beautiful. But that requires everyone tuning to a common key. 
and following the lead of a single conductor and playing the same piece together. For us, the conductor is Jesus Christ and the key is the great commandment and the score, the piece we are to play, is the great commission. It is only as we all seek to sharpen our focus and our hearts and our minds and our lives in living for that which matters most for all eternity that we will have any hope of seeing such a beautiful picture of church planted in our midst leading to powerful change in our world. And that is how the world is changed, isn't it? Do you remember... Back to our study of the Gospel of John. In early June, Brian took us through John chapter 13. And he came to verses 34 and 35 where Jesus says, A new commandment I give you. Love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you remember what Brian taught us though? He said that wasn't a new commandment at all. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament law. You can go to Deuteronomy 6 and what's called the Shema. You can see the same teaching. So Brian asked the question, what's new about it? And he shared what's new is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the hope and the possibility of regeneration. And the coming of the Holy Spirit and spirit empowerment to live an entirely different sort of life. And that is the picture in Acts 2. And it is incredible. It is a picture commanded all the way back in Deuteronomy, reinforced, taught, and foreshadowed by Jesus in the gospel, and now finding its vivid fulfillment in the church, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, that can be our experience as well. Even in 2021. Even in a divided America. But it requires each of us to focus our hearts Our minds, our mouths, our lives on Jesus, on the great commandment, on the great commission. Total surrender to God for his purposes and plans. Complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit to enable us. And then look what could happen. Verse 46 again, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Shared life in Christ brought joy. It brought thanksgiving and praise to God and their love and their community as they lived out their faith in the public square together were powerfully contagious. Now, obviously, the book of Acts is crystal clear that the early church was consistently seeking to verbally proclaim the message of the gospel. But in this passage, we see that just as Jesus said in John 13, it was also their love for one another that drew people to Christ. This beautiful picture of church was compelling and it was powerfully attractive. Ours can be.
as well. You know, sometimes it seems that Christianity is all about the big moments. Those irregular times when God shows up and does something absolutely extraordinary. And sometimes, in the long in-between, we just try and hang on and hang in there and just make it through life wearing a worn-out faith like an old Husker sweatshirt. But perhaps there is or can be just as much joy, life, and impact in daring to be the church on any and every ordinary day. One of the practices that we saw in verse 42 was the remembrance of Jesus. Taking all that is going on in our lives and setting it aside to focus on who he is, his goodness, and what he's done for us. To bring our hearts back to the primacy of Christ. And a gift that he gave that early church and us to do just that is the Lord's Supper. We want to partake in that together this morning. As you came in, you should have picked up a cup of the elements. If you didn't get one, just slip up your hand and an usher will bring one to you right now. If you're watching online, you can sure grab something at home right now if you need to. Natalie is going to begin to just play quietly. And I want to just ask that while she does, that we take just a couple of moments to talk to God, to reflect on where we're at, in our hearts, in our minds, in the midst of these difficult days. Ask the Lord, are are we rightly focused? Are the four practices of the early church, are they something that we are continually devoting ourselves to? Are we spirit-led and empowered? Are we leaning into the power of Jesus to live a transcendent life? Or are we living merely as mere humans? Are we seeking to live with and for Christ on our own? Or are we actually in this together? Finally, maybe some of us need to have a turn of heart or mind with some of what's going on in our world right now. Because what is the world seeing and experiencing from the church in America today? What are they then learning and concluding about the Christ. In Acts 2, they were seeing wonder, awe, genuine love and selflessness, true care for others, connection and relationship. Today, anger, division, camps, positions, politics, self-preservation. Maybe it's time for you to lay some of those things down right at the foot of the cross and refocus your heart on the primacy of the only one who is truly worthy of your life.